this is the conclusion of a novel in which the narrator is um, unreliable. Characters at the edges and on the edge. Remaining a perpetual possibility. Lonely, violent, deeply American life. Only in a world of speculation. True ease in writing comes from art, not chance. Very fine is my valentine. Very fine and very mine. You're listening to the Grand Podcast Abyss with John Pistelli. Great and puffed up with his retinue. This is from Yasha Monk's Twitter feed on January 9th. Yasha says, Half the battle of writing is figuring out how readers can easily absorb the information you are trying to communicate to them. Some important questions you should pay attention to while doing this include, bullet points, what information is essential? What non-essential information helps motivate the reader to keep going? What's the best order in which to present your ideas? Is any one sentence too long or cumbersome? Yasha goes on. Some people write to figure out what they actually think about a topic. That's great. Often, writing is the best aid to thinking. But if you want others to understand what you're saying, (laughs) you should probably start from scratch once you've figured out what you think. And this post caught the attention of uh, one Mr. John Pistelli. Doctor. Dr. Pistelli. My apologies. Mr. Doctor. (laughs) Mr. Dr. Pistelli. Mr. Big Time PhD. I think Yasha also has a PhD. Nice. (laughs) They're they're like swords. Yes. Um, And you responded to this post... Um, because it, it caught your attention. Yeah. I would say something, something incited something in you. And this is what you had to say in your, on the grand hotel abyss Tumblr blog, which is a father to us here at the podcast father to us all. And you said in response to Yasha, like most sound, practical, common sense, Writing recommendations. This is terrible advice. <laughs> what a prick. Who wrote this? <laughs> yeah. Who wrote this shit? <laughs> this guy's a dick. <laughs> this is terrible advice. I mean, you know, they Yasha might also prescribe subtlety in like an opening statement. <laughs> right. Which which you did not you did, you would not heed in this instance. No, I didn't. It's terrible advice, according to John. John goes on and says <laughs> Remember to borrow from Sidney Morgan Besser. Pragmatism is well and good in theory, but it doesn't work in practice. Zing. So what about what about this Morgan Besser? Can we talk about him later? <laughs> uh, no, let's do it now. Sidney Morgan Besser. Mm-hmm. Uh, 90s kids will remember him as the father of Daria Morgan Besser. No, that's a terrible joke. Um, Sidney, <laughs> you don't even get that, do you, Sam? No. No, okay. <laughs> I'm gonna, we're going to leave that in for our uh, audience of a certain age. Well, I like to improve my 90s cultural awareness, but right. I'll work on that on my own time. <laughs> well, so Daria Morgan Dorfer was on an MTV animated cartoon spun off from Beavis and Butthead. Nice. Um, but anyway, Sidney Morgan Besser was a philosopher, uh, a philosopher known mainly for his, his, uh, his bon mot, his apercues, his jokes. He was sort of a borscht belt comedian of the philosophical world. So, um, and I, I didn't know about him until I looked up, I saw that joke about pragmatism. And so I, looked up to see who said it and it was Sidney Morgan Besser and he's full of this stuff. Uh, so for instance, he wrote, so I'm reading from, he's almost Shakespearean. He almost belongs in a Shakespearean court. Exactly. He's that kind of like improvised, uh, Mm -hmm. jester. Yeah. So I quote from Wikipedia, he wrote little, but is remembered by many for his philosophical witticisms. One of the best known anecdotes has J.L. Austin claiming that although a double negative often implies a positive meaning, as is the case with he is not unlike his sister, there is no language in which a double positive implies a negative to which Morgan Besser retorts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> Another concerns Heidegger's why is there something rather than nothing? To this, Morgan Besser's response was, and if there were nothing, you'd still be complaining. You'd still be complaining. You'd still be <laughs> such small portions. Uh, <laughs> So it's not just what he's saying, it's how he's saying it. Yeah, yeah, it's that cadence of the Jewish comedian, the Borscht Belt comedian, mm -hmm. yeah, that uh, has a serious philosophical function. It punctures the afflatus of, of Western philosophy. The afflatus? The afflatus. What do you mean by that? The, the, uh, the gaseous uh, idealism, the, okay. the, uh, the taking leave of the earth mm. in a balloon. The loftiness. The loftiness. What else did he say? I'm looking at his Wikipedia page. He said, um, <laughs> he said... I like this one. Interrogated by a student whether he agreed with Chairman Mao's view that a statement can be both true and false at the same time, Morgan Besser replied, well, I do and I don't. <laughs> uh, here's one. On the independence of irrelevant alternatives, Morgan Besser ordering dessert is told by the waitress that he can choose between apple pie and blueberry pie. He orders the apple pie. Shortly thereafter, the waitress comes back and says the cherry pie is also an option. Morgan Besser says, in that case, I'll have the blueberry pie. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's important. You know, philosophy is a type of processing. It's important to laugh during processing. Yes. You know, don't listen to don't listen to Plato when he says, you know, don't laugh too much. Didn't he say that? He said, don't laugh too much. Did he? It yeah, sounds it like him. It'll yeah. destabilize your your sense of truth. Right. Which is good advice, but it's important to laugh. Mm-hmm. Mm. So you go on. <laughs> back to the back to the Grand Hotel Abyss. You go on and respond. In response to Yasha Monk's um, 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 argument that that writing should be practical, it should be spare, reduced, clear, and should deliver that to the reader in as um, as efficient a way as possible, without what did you say, a flatus? A flatus. A flatus. Yeah. Purple prose is that Pur the same thing? I think. Well, I mean, it, it's related. Yeah, purple yeah. prose. Uh... Yeah. Okay. And you go on to say, our entire culture has been commandeered by the ideas of abstruse philosophers. From the lugubrious jargon of Judith Butler in the far left. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> to the, to the, hold on, wait. No, it equals out. To the nauseating, monstrous ver verbosity of Mencius Mulbug on the far right. Yeah. yeah. Far left and far right are probably disputable there. Um Judith Butler famously donated to Kamala Harris's political campaign. Mm -hmm. And yet I still think <clears throat> she's philosophically on the far left, someone who asserts uh, limitless malleability to human nature or the, the sheer non-existence of human nature. Mm -hmm. And then Mencius Moldbug, Curtis Yarvin is his real name, um, his, his dead name, um, is, uh, I would say, on the far right insofar as he believes there are hard limits to human nature. Mm -hmm. the biological reality constrains what we can do politically. And yet, both of these thinkers have, have written enormous amounts. Butler, in volumes peer-reviewed, published by university presses, Moldbug on, uh, on you know, uh, Blogspot and Substack, and yet in both cases, they're very unclear. They're very, they're very verbose. They're very long writings. They're very, um, they're unexplained allusions. They're meandering sentences. They're strange anecdotes have seduced so many readers to their worldview. Seduce them with that, and maybe the readers don't even know quite what that worldview is or can't even deliver it in, in the type of clear way that, um, that Yasha is... <laughs> Dr. Is, Monk. Dr. Monk is, uh, is advocating. Right, right. And if they had, if they had stated, you know, here's my... Here's my major premise. Here's the minor premise. Here's another one. Here's the conclusion. Maybe people would have rejected it at first. Mm -hmm. they, if the if you just present are presented with their ideas as a as a as a properly elaborated uh, geometric proof, you'd be like, well, that's that's not true. Or how does that work? But as a style, that's how you first come to know it. Mm -hmm. And you wear it as a garment. Mm -hmm. And it and it contains more influence. 
than any sort of empiricizing logical errand of of literature. Yes. Yeah. And then isn't that what Nietzsche did to the he brought his he brought his abstruse baseball bat to the English utilitarians. <laughs> okay. Sam's making a gesture and I was wondering what it was, but it's a baseball bat. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, the double fist. Right. Waist level. Yeah, ex- precisely. Um yeah, I mean Nietzsche is the the philosopher, is stylist, the philosopher, is poet, and it's with this uh this mobile army of of tropes as he says somewhere that he is able to demolish the the edifice of, of Kantianism and Christianity. God, that shit is so. Do you, I mean, what do you think about that shit? Which which shit? That, like, uh, you know, fucking, <laughs> fucking language. It's, it's all metaphors and right. Yeah, it's just dance in it. Like, you know, just total orgasm dance and. Don't tell me what to do, and I'll flip. I'll flip around you like a little fox in the forest, and yeah, you don't know me, and I don't know me, and yeah, like all that loose, that loose shit. I, it's very attractive to me. I, I probably try to write that way myself, and yet there is a, a voice that tells me that there probably is a limit, not not the same limit that Mencius Moldbug thinks there is. Um, I don't want to slander the man, but I suspect him of being a (sighs) biological racist, I suppose is the phrase I'd use. But um, So not that limit. That's not my limit. But there is some human limit, some natural limit to the absolute openness of freedom, that there's some... But but Nietzsche thought so too. I mean, Nietzsche was also had a biological conception that he thought that every every you know person or race had a kind of physiology that 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 it expressed in its characteristic forms. So Nietzsche himself is torn between. I mean, the funny thing is, you could draw a family tree of thinking that starts with Nietzsche. And branches off in different ways, but still produces simply out of Nietzsche, Judith Butler, and Mencius Moldbug. Mm-hmm. That's when you—that's when you begin to um, um, question these type of thinkers. Yeah, how they could draw from the same source such opposite conclusions. Right. Um, it may—it may say something about the—I don't know—the true sturdiness of the source. Mm-hmm. Or because if we simply if we simply dance in a in a bath of of opposites, um, we're simply we're simply a bunch of fucking assholes after a while mm-hmm. with no commitment. Right, and, and so you're saying connect the two thoughts for me that the sturdiness of the source leading to, I mean, you know what it is, you know what we're encountering here? Yeah. Is the antinomies, antinomies, the paradox of life, which is that, Oh God. (laughs) I read this Giannis Varoufakis, um, economics textbook one time. Wow. Back in, it was back, you know, Syriza, we were excited. Uh, and, and he was saying, he started off, he's like, he's like, many good theories begin with a paradox. So let's start there. Mm-hmm. I just remember that. Did you remember his paradox? No. 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 Okay. But, <laughs> but I remember his principle of the paradox. And it's true. It's easy. The paradoxes are easy. It's like there's a given, unknown, absolute, almost touching sort of quality to the paradox right. that artists and philosophers can totally abuse. They can abuse it. But and I'm on Dosh, uh, Dr. Yash Monk's team. I just can Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you called him Dasha. <laughs> I'm on Dasha Monk's team. That's I'm a, convincing myself. That's a different podcast. I've thought enough about paradoxes. You know what? I can't remember any of it. No. I was fucking mystified. No, no. Here, here's the paradox <laughs> of life. It, it, it's in Shakespeare. It's in The Winter's Tale. Yeah. Okay. So there's a scene in The Winter's Tale. I don't even... The, the plot isn't important, but yeah. there's a scene where... A, a person says that um, he's talking about breeding flowers and plants and horticulture. 
and how you splice a base breed to a nobler breed. And it has to do with an element of the plot that's about somebody marrying someone below his station. And he says that this is precisely how nature improves itself is through the human interference in natural processes which is artifice. And so the famous antinomy of poison, drinking poison of (laughs) artifice and uh, nature is resolved in this phrase, which I've always kept with me from Shakespeare, the winter's tale, the art itself is nature. So we are here to encounter that limit, which is nature and work within it, improve it, splice it, ingest it, and thereby move that line. Not absolutely. You know, Judith Butler's kind of nuts. Not absolutely. Mm. They're, 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 we're constrained, you know, but, but we're there to, to, to mess with it. Do you think that those limits and, and, per, and perfect proportions behind reality, do you think they're already there and people can use can use this style, this abstruse style and these paradoxes to somehow in some way it sort of directs us to the limits that are already exist or these built-in features? Or do you think people can use the, that style and use the paradoxes to, to alter the, the, the limits or the rules or things that are already lodged? I, I think both. I think we, we find the limit both. and then we alter it. Both are true. You know, I went up to my professor at, at the U of M, um, and I was thinking a lot about this paradox stuff. And it was like, you would learn these theories, and it was like, there's this position and that position. And like, what's true? And every time you know, you wind up, you said, well, both. You know, you kind of get to yeah. both. So I said, professor, why don't you start a class called the theory of both? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's true, though. It's true, though, that every... William Blake, everything possible to be believed is an image of the truth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But isn't that sort of terrible and kind of nauseating and easy? It's so you breathe in, you breathe out, you know, like, you know, if you're fucking, you're dying, but you're alive. (laughs) (laughs) What would comfort you more, a definite? I don't know. I just want people to, I just don't, anybody who, who thinks that that's an end or that's a proper, that's a proper Technique or to dwell on that in and of itself, I think it's it's kind of easy. It's well, kind of easy. I take your point, but the problem is that's the end of thought. But from there begins action. Action, action, action. Action, action, action. <laughs> Steve Bannon. Um, yeah, that I think you do reach the end of thought, and that is the end of thought. But then you you do something. You, uh, you, you, that the process of playing with the limit is not consummated in thought. It's consummated in art, in, uh, art is action. Yeah. Art is action. Art isn't philosophy. So you go on. (laughs) (laughs) Go on. So you're talking about, you're saying lugubrious jargon and monstrosis verbosity and you, and you, and you reveal your centrist. Your centrist cards <laughs> to the internet. Um, it's not easy being a centrist, boy, I'll tell you. John goes on. Then again, its commanding heights were once occupied by votaries of the no less oracular Emerson. What? What? So what are you saying there? And say, we'll read the next sentence, and yep. then I'll tell you what I'm saying. Our country was founded by a visionary Illuminati. Our culture by... Allegorizing hermeneutes. Hermeneutes. Um, (laughs) Hermeneutes. I'm saying that the leading thinkers in America have never been um, clear, necessarily wholly clear writers or um, believers in mere empiricism. Our country was, uh, our culture arguably is founded in New England by these Calvinists who saw the world in a completely allegorical light, everything meant everything else and corresponded to something in the New Testament, which itself referred back to something in the Hebrew Bible. They never just saw reality. And even their famous, Mm. you hear that they had a plain style in writing, but not if you read them, it's all, 
elaborate metaphors. It's multidimensional. It's multidimensional. It's allegories in their prose. And then, you know, the revolution is made by deists, is made by uh, people who believed in the inspecting the clockwork mechanism of the universe created by a deus abscondus, and therefore their whole um, they regarded nature as sort of the this this book that had to be interpreted. Um, they weren't great believers. Even again, here again, we see the great trickster quality of American literature, Ben Franklin's plain style, Jefferson's mm. lawyerly prose. But what's it all in service to is to these ultimately occult ideas. And then we have the openly mystical Emerson and the transcendentalist cohort founding American literature in the mid-19th century on ideas derived from Hindu philosophy, German idealism, Swedenborg, and written in oracular that is to say vatic that is to say prophetic prose that uh that doesn't make much sense you just need to let it uh blow the different doors open in your mind like a bath like a bath and so um so there is no uh there is no clarity in america and according to dr yasha monk's argument i mean if you if the if the people who founded this country if they followed his what he's saying here and I'm a I'm a Dr. Yashamonk believer. I mean, I I agree with it. I mean, I agree with it more 15 minutes ago. But but after that, I agree with it less. But <laughs> I'm easily persuaded. Right. I could turn on, you know, CNN and totally buy in, and then turn on Fox News and get outraged. Like, yeah. I'm a I'm a bit of an ideological. Um, I don't know what it is, man. I just love I love when people commit to persuading me of something. Yes. Which is kind of what we're talking about. But if the people who if the if the people who founded this country and 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 defined its culture, if they followed this advice, we might not have a country. Right. I think that it's hard to change the world in writing if you just put all your cards on the table. Let, let me say something in defense of Dr. Yasha Monk, since we've dropped his name so many times. I believe he's a centrist, by the way. Um, well, I'm a centrist, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? um, hard won, hard fought. Insofar as he's just talking about journalism, then sure. If you're writing a newspaper article on um, a uh, a vote that was taken in the legislature or on a car accident that happened that day, then yes, obviously you would simply want to produce a uh, coherent and clear and communicable body of facts. But since he does just say writing in his Twitter thread... I think writing must be more than that. I think writing must be more alive to all the dimensions of language. And in fact, I think the writing that's often been most transformative to the world hasn't given just the facts, hasn't given just what you need at any given moment to most efficiently process information, but has rather given too much. And it's precisely in the process of setting that too much in order that the reader who is a participant in the writing process becomes transformed. Behold there in the wood the fine madman. He is a palace of sweet sounds and sights. He dilates. He is twice a man. He walks with arms akimbo. He soliloquizes. He accosts the grass and the trees. He feels the blood of the violet, the clover, and the lily in his veins. And he talks with the brook that wets his foot. The heats that have opened his perceptions of natural beauty have made him love music and verse. It is a fact often observed that men have written good verses under the inspiration of passion who cannot write well under any other circumstances. The like force has the passion over all his nature. It expands the sentiment. It makes the clown gentle and gives the coward heart. Into the most pitiful and abject it will infuse a heart and courage to defy the world so only could have the countenance of the beloved object. Dude, I don't, I don't know, though. I don't know, though, man, about <laughs> some of this stuff. Because um, what about wit? What about judgment? Thomas Hobbes basically said, get those witticisms out of here. Yeah. You kook fucks. Did he? Fuck yeah, I said that. <laughs> I'm not he up on said, that. He said, turn down the wit, you Elizabethan 
Fairy Queens? Right. Well, What's a, what is, yes. Okay. Well, oh, yeah, right. So Thomas Hobbes is writing after the revolution, isn't he? And so he fears. He fears. Thobbs. He fears. Terrible Hobbes. Horrible Hobbes. He fears fanaticism. He fears yeah. collective passion. He values security. That was just a front, man. Yeah, right. I think it probably was. I haven't read him. That was straight up front. You know, speaking of Thomas Hobbes, <laughs> Hannah Arendt, you know, the thing about critics of modernity is that every critic of modernity has a pers- has a philosopher they blame for all the terrible things that happened in modernity. And for Hannah Arendt, it's very interesting. She blames Hobbes. Because Thobbs, <laughs> because the author of Leviathan begins utilitarianism for her. He begins the bourgeois ideology of the greatest good for the greatest number. And so if you need to provide security for the greatest number, you make a contract. The contract, you know, allows for unlimited authority of the sovereign. This is eventually will, you know, end up in Mensch's Moldbug's view of the, the sovereign corporation. And it's because of that utilitarian calculus that securing the greatest good for the greatest number by any means necessary means you can dispose of the lesser number brings you right to the gate of Auschwitz. So he's he's at fault for her? Yeah. It's interesting. I didn't know that about her. Hmm. And she has a she you know, people don't read this into her work, but she's very much an anti authoritarian. I guess they do, because she wrote about totalitarianism. I guess that's pretty much all they read into her work. But what they <laughs> don't read <laughs> what they don't read is just the people reading it now are the people who might be authoritarian in their in their yes. ambitions. Yes. And Hannah I'm talking Arendt. about liberals. Yes. I'm talking about liberals in colleges. I'm talking about liberals graduated from colleges. Yeah. I'm talking about liberals in corporations. I'm talking about big, big libs. Yeah, Hannah Arendt would hate her fans right now. She would. Um, She would hate fact checking. She would hate the idea of misinformation. Uh, She would hate. She would hate that fucking sign you see, and you walk through an urban neighborhood, and it says, "In this house, we believe science is real." Mm -hmm. She would hate that. The conformist. Yeah, she would hate. She hated science. And I recommend, by the way, to our listeners, a uh, essay in Harper's Magazine by Rebecca Panofka about what libs get wrong about Hannah Arendt. And it begins by talking about how she hated as a journalist to be fact-checked. Something we are usually hardly aware of. Hardly aware of. more journalistic style because they're both journalists. He said, don't bring up Hemingway and you, you take a shot at him. He made it so simple it became illegible again. I wasn't criticizing. I think that's yeah. his, I account for his longevity oh, that way. Yeah, that's his, that's his novelistic feat. Yeah. Yeah. But you do take a shot at Orwell. Maybe. <laughs> As for the literary Puritan Orwell, call me when they decide on his politics because this supposed no two ways about it plain speaker 
has been claimed by every faction. Yeah, so I had in mind there the way that Orwell has been claimed by the right and the left, that, um, you know, the neoconservatives loved him. I think famously Norman Podhoritz said if Orwell were alive today, today being the 70s, he would be uh, against the Soviets. And uh, But also Noam Chomsky has often cited Orwell as an influence. Um and I just think it's ironic that he writes this famous essay, Politics in the English Language, in which he says that kind of makes the Yasha Monk argument that writing should be clear. And if it's not, it's obfuscation on behalf of some uh, hideous practice of an ideology that wants to cloak itself in windy abstractions. And yet he himself, in all of his vaunted Anglo-Saxon clarity, uh, because there's a subtext to his essay about preferring the the Germanic side of the English language to the effete, uh, elite Latin side. In all of his profound clarity, it's, it's a blinding clarity, ultimately, because a mere decade or two after his death, it's not clear what his politics were or would be if you extrapolated them from mm-hmm. his own period. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't give, like Monk talks about, the essential information... And the essential information would be like, where do you stand? What do you believe? Right? Yeah, you'd think. Yeah, you'd think. But in 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 writers like Nietzsche and Orwell, who use opposed styles, it's that same result of you don't know where they stand. Right. And of course, his most famous novel is an am- very ambiguous sort of parable slash allegory for that everybody. I mean, when. Donald Trump is elected. Their uh, liberals, libs, our favorite people, uh, started buying shirts and hats and tote bags that said, make Orwell fiction again. Mm. And then when Joe Biden was elected, our beloved conservatives, even some of the QAnon crowd, started doing the same thing. They started having memes. I saw a meme that when Joe Biden was elected, a conservative posted a meme that showed somebody moving uh, a book and it said moving 1984 to the nonfiction section. Right. And so we're living in 1984. We're living in 1984. And so how can, you know, how can this be true? How can it be about the right, the left, the center, you know, Joe Biden's arguably centrist. uh, How can it be about the center? And yet it's used for all these things because you can't control language as ultimate meaning. And you go on to say people enjoy a mystery though. As long as the labyrinth is baited with a few alluring phrases, ones you'd love to live in for a while, and the uh, implicit promise that you, yes you, will be one, uh, one of the ones to understand at the right hand of the author in the mind's Valhalla. Right. I think one of the problems with the Dr. Yasha Monk worldview is that it leads to you patronizing the reader. Uh, it leaves you as the authority and the reader as the disciple getting patted on the head at the knee of the author. Whereas when somebody writes something that is not immediately clear, it pays you the compliment that, oh, you'll figure this out. You'll be, you'll, you, it's as if, um, Mm. it's as if to say, I don't need to explain all this to you. You're smart enough to get it already. And even if you don't get it already, uh, that very gesture makes you feel empowered, and it's it implies that I, I as a reader, the writer is saying, I respect the thing in you that responds to uncertainty, or the thing in you that is cultivated by moving through a lack of understanding yes. and gaining in a generative way. Um, that's a capability. Keats called it the negative capability. Mm-hmm. And that writers who respect and cultivate that capability in their readers, not to confuse them or manipulate them or mystify them or waste their time, but because that's a really that's a very real element of literary relationships. Yeah, and I go on to argue that it's transformative, that it um, transforms the reader in the act of deciphering the text. And can transform ideologies and nations ultimately. Yes. So I quote from a f- an article 
from the London Review of Books from 20 years ago <clears throat> by a scholar named Bruce Robbins who was responding. So Martha Nussbaum, philosopher Martha Nussbaum, wrote a famous critique of Judith Butler called The Professor of Parody that appeared in The New Republic back when that was a more of a neoconservative magazine back in the 90s. And Nussbaum's charge against Butler was that Butler's abstruse style meant that um, Butler's writing would have no practical effect and was thus an abandoned— So wrong. And it proved wrong. I could see why Nussbaum thought that in the 90s, but it's clear that Butler has sort of won, won the battle for what feminism would be, what gender ideology would be, on the left anyway. And what Robbins— Robbins very prophetically, very presciently says in this article from 20 years ago is that it's Butler's very style. So one of Butler's key ideas that is borrowed from the philosopher J.L. Austin, whom we mentioned in the anecdote about Sidney Morgan Besser with which we opened this episode. I don't know where the hell that sentence started. Who's asking? <laughs> Who's asking? Um, no, I think it was yeah, yeah. Um, but J.L. Austin had this philosophy of two kinds of utterances in a language. One was, I don't remember what the technical term was for it was, but basically descriptive. The, the, uh, the wall is white, the door is open, the lamp is on. It tells you something about the state of the world as it exists. But then he notes there's a different kind of utterance, which he called the performative. And that is when, by saying something, you change reality. And his examples were the marriage ceremony. So when you say, I do, in the marriage ceremony, you're not describing a static state of affairs. You're changing the state of affairs because when you say that, you become married. Similarly, when the king or queen uh, christens the, a ship or gives a decree, the king's word is law. The king's mm -hmm. word changes reality. And Butler's insight is that all language can be performative in this way. I mean, that reminds me, that reminds me of when I was in seventh grade. Mm -hmm. And I, I went into an auditorium full, full of incoming fifth graders mm -hmm. into the school. And I called, I called all of them chicken fuckers. Mm -hmm. And then I got suspended for a week. Yeah. So it's, yes. sometimes language has a consequential dynamic right. outside of the descriptive. Yes. And Bruce Robbins's idea of Butler's style is that it's Butler's style with all of the sort of unstated assumptions the reader has to work through to begin to comprehend it makes the reader the recruit of Butler's ideology in a way that a merely descriptive and clear, clear style a la Martha Nussbaum would not be able to do. Very fascinating. And I guess the great writers can use are very much aware of those mechanisms of, I guess, seduction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, seduction or, yeah, or recruitment. I mean, magnetism, uh, invitation of a certain rumination. Yeah, charisma. Yeah, charisma. Yeah, there's no writing without these things. There's not. And, you know, um, this brings to mind, for me at least, and someone who, you know, maybe maybe has a place in, well, maybe he would like to think that he has a place in all literary discussions, but Norman Mailer. Right. We mentioned Norman Mailer on the last episode, and like many um, intellectuals, I was discussing Norman Mailer without having read one of his books on the last episode. Um, <laughs> It's called a Sam special. <laughs> <laughs> but I have since read and, in fact, written about one of his... Most and that's called a John Pastelli special. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I've read his book, The Armies of the Night, and which is a fascinating book in this conversation because it's labeled... It's often called a nonfiction novel. And it's a book very much in the vein of what should the political left do because it, it narrates Norman Mailer's participation in a demonstration against the Vietnam War marching on the Pentagon in 1967 in the company with some other famous writers like the poet Robert Lowell and the critic Dwight MacDonald. 
And it is a nonfiction novel in that Mailer narrates in the third person. And he says, you know, Mailer did this, Mailer did that, but he's the main character. And the genius of the book is that it's soaring rhetoric, but it's also um, self-parodying comedy. He talks about um, how he's drunk for the whole for the whole thing of the book. He's carrying around a mug of bourbon, just drinking from it in public. And he talks in one scene about going into a bathroom and the lights aren't on and he ends up peeing on the floor. I mean, he includes these little self-satirical details. He doesn't leave out anything. Um, and yet the the key of the book is that it's a performance of his own personality. And you might wonder, well, isn't that narcissistic? What's the political dimension to that? Well, the political dimension is that Mailer most objects in American society to what he calls its totalitarianism, by which he means the exact same thing Hannah Arendt meant by that word, the reduction of human beings to numbers, to masses, to quantities, the elimination of any sense of the soul, of the sacred, and of the, of the primal impulses of the body, the flesh, sex, anything that kind of erupts uh, chthonically, primordially uh, from the flesh. And so he ineffectually marches on the Pentagon. He's not able to stop the war. He makes a futile gesture of solidarity that gets him arrested by the military police and spends a night in jail. But this protest comes really to nothing. And he is dismayed. He's attracted by the hippies. He's he's interested in them, but he's also dismayed by the shift of the left to a from a working class attracted movement. Attracted by the hippies? He, well, there is a sense there that he's attracted by the girls as well. He, this is a... We all know the problems with Norman Mailer. We all know what happened in the 60s. Yes. Um, but he, he, he liked the, the part where the, the, the hippies were an eruption of what couldn't be contained by the merely scientific rationality symbolized by the Pentagon, this horrible uh, five-sided empty structure. Well, isn't it interesting today how our, today's hippies are um, allied with with big tech, big rationality, big science. Yeah, and I think that's the tragedy of that book because he thinks the hippies will take us away from that, but they got sucked right in so quick. Yeah, and now yeah. they're shaming you for being unvaccinated. Exactly, yeah. The hippies are just the shock troops of the global corporations is what the counterculture now is. Um, but interestingly, Mailer gives us some resources to think about what we could do uh, to counter that. One of the things that I find interesting is that he calls himself in the book, um, he refers to himself as a left conservative. And he says, as a left conservative, he tried to think in the style of Marx in order to attain certain values suggested by Edmund Burke. And what I take to mean by that is that he needs to criticize capitalism to get back to something more both spiritual and organic that capitalism has destroyed, deracinated. And I think left conservatism is in many ways a phrase we could use for some of the most interesting thinking today that is not easily reduced to left-right. What do you think? Who do you think is doing that thinking? I think people like... Um, I think people now I'm, I'm, I'm nervous to name names, um, but it, it goes all the way from from transformations in pop culture. We could talk about our fellow podcasters, the Red Scare Girls uh, and their transition from Bernie supporters to this. Um, you know, one of them is converted to Catholicism. The other is a new mother. Um, their adoption of, of more natural and spiritual ways of life. Um, but we could also talk about, I think one of the most fascinating things today that's under-discussed, because I think people, I honestly think it embarrasses people on both sides, but is the uh, incredible intellectual diversity in right-wing publications. So we have publications like the Washington Examiner or First Things um, publishing uh, postmodernist intellectuals like Jeffrey Schulenberger or Marxist philosophers like Sam Chris um, or so-called reactionary feminists like Mary Harrington. For that matter, I myself have appeared in The Spectator and in Tablet, which I think is a centrist journal in the last uh, in the last two years. So I, I myself am, I wouldn't consider myself a right-winger, but I appear in the right-wing press myself. Well, it's interesting that 
that this that you're talking about this in context of Mailer because if if we were to historically transplant Mailer from his context in the '60s to um, today, he would be much further. He would be at home on the right. He would be classified as a right winger. He would absolutely go on Red Scare. He would go on Red Scare. He would not write for the Atlantic or Harper's or anything no like that. No that way. he was writing for Rolling Stone. Yeah. That he was writing for back in the day. So there is some sort of measurement available in in uh, um, trying to uh, consider what these type of writers, how they would be received in, in our context today. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, he was part of a, a, a crew of uh, openness and experimentation. And I don't know if they were free speech absol- absolutists, but they were probably as close as you could find in the country. Yeah. Um, there's, even, there's a hilarious moment in The Armies of the Night that I didn't get to write about uh, when I wrote my essay on it in johnpistelli.com. JohnPastelli.com. Um, that there's a moment where he talks about writing for an anarchist journal, and he tried to use. He said, "I tried to use the four-letter word for the most definitive female organ." And he said, "But these anarchists in the early '60s who believed in the complete overthrow of society, the destruction of armies, the destruction of police," he said, "they would not print cunt." And he said, but now he's writing in the late 60s. He said every single left-wing editor wants to print as many obscenities as possible. And he ends the paragraph with, he just writes at the end of the paragraph, fuck, with an exclamation point. Yeah, I mean, the last time I can remember the left um, defending free speech to that degree is um, were the Charlie Hebdo shootings. Yeah, and only some of them. And only some of them. That was sort of yeah. the beginning of the, for me, that was the beginning of the, the turn right. away. And even then, they had their common Islamist enemies, so they had, like, and it wasn't in our, it wasn't in the U.S., so they had, like, certain allegiances and, and distance in order to, you know, encourage that sort of free speech defense yeah. in that event. But without those, and within our now d- domestic context, you 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 couldn't buy any of that from from the mainstream left. No, I don't think the, if the Salman Rushdie thing happened today, I don't think they'd defend him. Yeah. Why is that? I think they fully. Well, you know, the funny thing is. It's because they fully bought into the dark side of the Judith Butler argument about the performative, that because language changes the world, this thing they call hate speech, which you're never going to define coherently any more than you could define misinformation or pornography coherently. But yeah, yeah. (laughs) But they think um, that this is so effective in the world that violence could be a proportional response. I don't think they think that the Charlie Hebdo cartoons and the murder of the Charlie Hebdo cartoonists were really incongruous acts. Wow. Did I go too far? Is that too much? No, you went so far, I want you to say it again. What did you just say? I said, I'm not sure they think that the Charlie Hebdo cartoons and the murder of the Charlie Hebdo cartoonists were incongruous acts. Yeah. On a moral level, they're, they have this, they have the same sort of, they're a similar violation. Even on a pragmatic level, I think they think that if you say something untoward about a group of people, you are along the same line as someone who would commit violence against that group of people. Yeah, that is, um, that, that can be tremendously, or that can, um, necessitate, if you believe that, that it can necessitate extreme, like, um, precautionary and, like, suppressive measures. Yes. Against speech and utterance. Yes. But the cynical, like the real politic of that, would be, you know, that's a tr- that's a tremendous explanation of 
of um, of how the ideology functions as true to them, and it's alarming the way you put it, and it's an act, and it's actually quite clarifying. It's quite clarifying the way you put it, um, because I have been gazed at like a like a murderer based on minor speech violations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's happened to us all if ha- we're on yeah, the left. Yeah. yeah. And and if we're if we've dwelled in their chambers, and <laughs> and uh, um, but the real politique would be like, okay, that's fine and powerful, and maybe their followers experience that and are able to be mobilized on those on those within that ideological um, um, adit- orientation, but. But really, it's actually just a trem- it, can, it can create tremendous political power if that if that's enforced, and that's probably the real truth of it, right? I, I think, but I also think they they've misled themselves. I think you mean the, the, the kind of the engineers, or yeah, I think they have forsaken a deeper form of power that worked behind the scenes and more silently for a brittle form of power, which works in the open. And let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. I think that, and I don't mean, I hate when people, um, I really hate when people are making a free speech argument and then they say, but I do hate the speech I'm defending because it always seems like they're making too much of a concession. However, I really hate those Charlie Hebdo cartoons. I think they're hideous. I think they're ethically hideous. I think they're aesthetically hideous. But what the left has forsaken is any ability to control the world of art such that they can explain that they are in poor taste and therefore risible and therefore ignorable and therefore a serious person doesn't pay attention to this trash. What they've done is they've martyrized it to the point where I now must come to its defense these ugly cartoons. I don't want to come to the defense of these ugly cartoons, but I must because they have chosen this brittle form of power that says that they control speech overtly because speech is violence. And, uh, and I don't think it's violence. I I think it's, uh, it's, it's to be ignored. Yeah. They, they generalize their ethics and that prevents, um, particular, evaluations of events and contexts and circumstances and that also necessitates because they're contending for power it necessitates that i must generally oppose their ethics Mm -hmm. exactly yeah and that's it puts them in a brittle position i think their power is very fragile right now they have a very fragile hegemony because they've they've sort of silenced their critics, and so they don't. It's the old paradox of the dictator um, who thinks he's winning the war because he'll kill anybody that gives him bad news. Yeah, uh, they're in that position. And we weren't weak enough to silence. <laughs> That's a little melodramatic, but <laughs> sure. <laughs> I should have waited until we were weaker. Yeah, but to go back to Mailer, I think his. The whole unspoken argument of that book, The Armies of the Night, is that what the left needs is big personalities, generous personalities, boisterous uh, laughter and, and aesthetics and art and the body and the soul and all of that. And it shouldn't be a contraction. It shouldn't be puritanical. Mm. He, con- he contrasts himself throughout the book because he's very conscious that he's this, you know, from the working class Jewish urban background in New York. And then he's marching with Robert Lowell, the Boston Brahmin cadaverous Puritan. And he respects mm. Lowell immensely. Uh, and yet he contrasts himself. And I think there's maybe a shot at uh at this Puritan strain in the American left that Lowell represents. And it goes back longer than most people realize. That goes back to all the way reformists in New yeah. England, pre-revolutionary. Mm-hmm. That goes back to temperance and abolition movements mm-hmm. in the Northeast. Goes back to the English Civil War. Because you could trace it back to the English Civil War. Yeah. Um, although, you know, today... Today, I think we're at we're at a moment where where, and I've been feeling this personally for the past couple 
months is we're at a moment of a great aesthetic opportunity within the maximal ideological chaos. And they're not directly related. I mean, they are related, but it's, they don't totally condition the other. But still, we're in a period, we're in a decade, we're in a time, we're in a point of generational development mm-hmm. where people are processing new stimulus, just like the modern, modernists were back in the, the fin de siècle. Mm-hmm. Um, we're processing similarly with tech, similar rapid and fantastic change, a lot of pent-up energy, a lot of things unprocessed waiting to be processed and put into form. I just sense that among the generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's an exciting time. I think it's a, this is an exciting decade. Yeah. And really, it didn't, it, it didn't start in 2020. It's probably just started within the past year. This decade. Yeah, I think so. And I which I makes think, it interesting, even more interesting. Right. Well, it's kinda like the modernist decade itself starts in nineteen twenty two. Um I mean, it might just be that the twentieth century starts in nineteen twenty two. Unless it started in eighteen ninety. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think it's an exciting time. There's a lot of to worry about. I think we face something that looks to me more and more like a scientific dictatorship when you think about the social credit score and the way bio, but the biological status of the human being has been politicized. Um, but um, with, well, to quote Martin Heidegger, quoting his favorite poet Herderlin, who said, where the danger grows, there the saving power grows. Yeah, and it's, it's so, to me, it's so fucking interesting right now. Things are so interesting, and maybe, maybe we would we wouldn't have enough time to sort of edify or reposition our perceptions with older works of literature, or maybe there's too much happening now to waste time on. But I said no. It's like the best thing I can do right now is to go back in the past and fortify myself with great works of literature which will in turn alter my my present in hugely beneficial ways. Yeah, I think there's a great deal to be found in older writers. I think uh, and I think a lot of them aren't even you know understood or at least we can understand them in different ways now due to what we see as the most salient issues uh than were identifiable before. I think if I had read The Armies of the Night um 10 years ago wouldn't have meant much to me, but I think it's become newly relevant. But you think we're in like such an intense, fertile time or changing time, stimulating time, much more than the 2000s and the, in the first half of the 2020, the 2010s. Yeah. Right. You'd agree. Oh yeah. Those are terrible times. Yeah. Culturally. They were sort of, <laughs> dead, were, yeah. Dead. Yeah. Um, um, but now like, which my what I'm wondering about is like which works are now reactivated, resuscitated now in this time. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, for me, I think really we're only now. I think people don't fully grasp the time it takes to to figure out if a writer's canonical or not. And I think because when the writer's alive, you know, they're alive. They have their friends and enemies. Um, then right after they die, there's always a reputational dip. Uh, it's like a classic thing. When they die, it's like, oh, they're gone. No, we're not going to read them anymore. And then it's only about 10, 20 years after that that you start seeing if they're staying power or not. Because you need people. I think I once put it this way, which is that um, the, the, the writer's own generation is too caught up in the rivalry of the moment to see if they're any good or not. The subsequent generation has an Oedipal impulse to kill the parent, so you can't really tell from them. You have to wait till the grandchildren's generation because only they can look with a clear eye two generations back. Mm. And so for me, the most exciting writers now in a lot of ways are the mid and mid to late 20th century writers like Mailer, like Saul Bellow, like Iris mm. Murdoch, Susan Sontag, um, obviously James Baldwin's been huge in this period. All the writers of that broad moment, the writers born in the first um, third or first 
Sorry, I'm doing math in my head. It's a terrible thing. The writers born early in the 20th century who lived to write and comment in the late 20th century, to me, are the ones exciting to revisit right now. That's wonderful. 